If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In the summer of 1936, Spain descended into a brutal civil war, fought between its democratically elected government and a nationalist insurgency led by General Franco and supported by fascist Italy and Nazi Germany. But the conflict wasn't just purely a Spanish affair. Writers and activists travelled from across the world in support of the government, determined to stop fascism in its tracks and prevent it from spreading. It's the stories of these foreign volunteers, specifically the experiences of women, that form the basis of a new book by the author Sarah Watling. John Balcombe spoke to Sarah about the diverse cast of characters that headed to Spain to fight and what we can learn from their actions today. So firstly, Sarah, thanks very much for coming on the pod today. Thank you for having me. Your new book is a group biography and it it looks at the stories of a whole cast of characters, of writers, of activists, of photographers during the Spanish Civil War. Before we get started, I just wondered whether you could give us a bit of background information about that conflict. Um, How did it begin? Yeah, so I mean, very, very briefly for a complicated war, obviously, it started in July 1936. It was essentially a military coup and by a group of generals who included uh, Francisco Franco, who eventually emerged as their leader. And yeah, it was a coup against a a legally elected government. It was a left wing government that had come into power earlier that year uh, in the elections. And the reason it became a civil war was because there was this sort of popular uprising in support of the government that prevented the the military generals with their forces from just taking over the country. Yeah, and a lot of people from across the world, particularly Britain and the US, um, they travelled to Spain, don't they, to take up this fight on the Republican side. When it came to writing this book, how did you decide who you were going to focus on? That's a really good question. I think this book is so centred around individuals. So in one sense, it was just the individuals who really spoke to me. It was kind of that personal in some ways. 
But I also wanted to make sure that I covered one of the things that that really interested me when I started researching the Spanish Civil War was actually like the huge range of people whose lives were touched by it, who were kind of mobilized politically by it. And the we have this image of the Cambridge poets going to the Spanish Civil War and people like John Comford who were, who were killed in the conflict. But actually, that's kind of a misconception. There was a, a very wide range of people who were inspired to fight in Spain. Uh, a high proportion of them were actually working class. They weren't young men of privilege. And so that was one of the things that really fascinated me that was that there were all these different kinds of people who went there. And also so many people who are very famous writers or thinkers who I had never personally associated with Spain, who I discovered from researching had actually gone there. People like Langston Hughes, who we know that he spent time in Europe, but it, to me, he's kind of associated with Paris in the 1920s, for example. Um, and to find that he had taken the trouble to go to Madrid to report from that conflict really fascinated me and made me realize like how much it was an international conflict not just in terms of the belligerents but also in terms of how widely it resonated and how many different types of people recognized it as a conflict with significance for their era. Indeed and I mean I first want to discuss uh, Nancy Cunard and she comes from the famous Cunard shipping dynasty. I mean how does someone like her become involved with this this cause? Yeah so Nancy Cunard is a very interesting woman. As you say, she was from the Cunard family. So on her father's side, he was a, a descendant of the founder of the Cunard shipping line. He had a title. He had a 13,000 acre estate in Leicestershire where she grew up. So she has this background of enormous privilege. Her, on the other side of her family, her mother was an American heiress. So that was where the money came from. And she was one of London's great hostesses. So as Nancy grew older, she was surrounded by all of her mother's contacts who were the wealthy, the famous, the talented, the powerful, who were gathered around this this woman in her home. And Nancy was someone who was almost one of the it girls of the period. You know, this was the, the age of the illustrated news. It was the age when the um, gossip columnists really came into their own. And the their kind of fodder was young socialites like Nancy Cunard. So she had this enormous profile and this great fame and these great contacts. But she was somebody who was very interested in the arts. She was a poet herself. She was amused to many artists uh, in Paris and in London in the sort of Edwardian period and the 1920s. She set up her own publishing house. In this, more towards the late 20s and the early 30s, she became very interested in politics. She campaigned against empire. She campaigned against racism. So she has this enormous profile, but in a way she finds it very difficult to be taken seriously because the press that's interested in her is really interested in like what hat she's wearing or what fashions she's going to bring to the streets or whatever. So she is someone who takes things into her own hands a bit more. She's used to doing that. So she had already set up her own publishing house to promote the kind of arts that she was interested in. And she also in the 1930s became a journalist herself. So she was actually in Geneva when the Spanish Civil War broke out. She was reporting on the League of Nations deliberations over Italy's invasion of Ethiopia, which she felt very strongly about. And she really objected to the sort of main, the stories she was seeing in the mainstream press, which was fairly conservative, about what was happening in Spain. Namely that there was a lot of sympathy for Franco as a kind of hero who was, who was saving Spain from... Uh, the communist hordes, which was how they described the legitimately elected left-wing government of Spain. 
Um, and so Spain, the, the government was depicted as encompassing these yeah, sort of communist hordes who were going around thieving and murdering. And she felt that this was a very one-sided view, partly because her view was very much on the other side, of course. And what's significant, and the reason that she wanted to go to Spain particularly, was because she wanted to see things for herself. That's central for her, that because she doesn't really trust the narrative that's being written, particularly in the French press, but also in the British press. And so she thinks it's it's crucial for her to see for herself what's happening and so that she can report that side as well. Yeah, and what I found really interesting is that Nancy Cunard isn't a lone voice. I mean, how were people able to just drop everything and join this cause? At the beginning, it wasn't too difficult to get to Spain, but it very, very quickly became difficult to cross the border. But someone like Sylvia Townsend Warner, she is already living on the outside. You know, she's living in this kind of bucolic hamlet in the English countryside, but she's very much outsider. She's living in a queer household. She's a communist. So she's not she's not somebody who she's used to flying in the face of, of respectability, basically. And she doesn't have the um, domestic uh, ties that mean that she can't up and leave when she wants to and go to Spain. But then you also have a, another person in my book is Nan Green, who was a, a young I mean, she was a housewife and a mother um, and a communist. And, you know, she has all of those domestic ties that you would associate with not to put it too bluntly, but entrapment for women, essentially. She has very young children. She She's having to kind of keep the household going after her husband has gone to Spain. And yet she has this political faith that gives her the kind of internal courage and, and sense of confidence in her beliefs that enables her to make that difficult decision to go to Spain, even though everyone around her is saying that, you know, she should stay with her children. So they, they are people who who have recognised the liberty that outsiderdom can give them, I think. Absolutely. And you mentioned Sylvia Townsend Warner there, and she has a female partner, Valentine Ackland, and they go to they go off to Barcelona, I think. And in the book, you describe how they turn up wearing hats, which is, a, you know, a symbol of the bourgeoisie. I mean, were, were these people, were they naive in some respects? Yes, I'm sure they were. It was in some ways a kind of naive moment, I think. But that was kind of what was brilliant about it. It was this moment, you know, they arrive in Barcelona. Barcelona is essentially an anarchist city, um, an anarchist sort of political philosophy where they reject hierarchy and they reject sort of all forms of compulsion. So one of the downsides of that is that when they're organised into militias, they want to vote on all the orders that their officers give them and that kind of thing, which means that they're not the most efficient <laughs> fighting forces. But in Barcelona, it also means things like Restaurants are requisitioned and run by their employees and providing food to the populace. And, you know, women aren't appearing in society wearing hats and people aren't using the formal modes of greeting with each other because this is supposed to be a sort of hierarchy free society. And so it really feels to someone like Sylvia Townsend Warner, who is a communist and who, you know, has as her touchstone the Russian Revolution and the socialist utopia that she wants to believe has been established somewhere. It really feels like this moment where where a new society could really be created. That that it's a it's a dreadful moment because it's a war and there is terrible slaughter happening. But out of this chaos, there is this sense that something new can be built and something better. And this, you know, for all that he became disillusioned, this is what George Orwell is kind of inspired by when he arrives in Barcelona as well. This sense that people who have been long oppressed are suddenly kind of rising up and and creating the society that would benefit everyone. 
Indeed. And what about the kinds of writing that these people were producing? I'm thinking particularly of someone like Martha Gellhorn, who becomes a very celebrated war correspondent. And I think she goes on to cover just about every single major war of the 20th century, doesn't she? Yeah, well, I mean, Martha Gellhorn is famous, obviously, as being the only woman who reported on the D-Day landings or who was actually there. She's sort of remembered for two things. One is her incredible career as a war correspondent. And the other, sadly, is her marriage to Ernest Hemingway. And both of those facets of her identity are sort of cemented in Spain. She hadn't been a war. She hadn't really been a journalist before she came to Spain. And what she does so brilliantly is that she writes these long pieces of reportage. She has a very elegant, very sort of emphatic voice in print. And what she, you know, she's not just reporting on the latest statistics or what the, you know, the armies are doing, but she's kind of zeroing in on individuals sometimes. And she's writing in this literary style. She allows for sections of description. So it's she's bringing these devices that fiction would normally use to her reporting. And what she's trying to do is bring what is happening in Spain home to readers maybe in the US. She's writing for Colliers, which has a sort of mass audience in the US, and making them almost sort of recognise what's happening in Spain, recognise Spaniards as something not foreign to them, but something that has significance for them. And there are sort of these moments in her articles where she says, you know, it's like walking through New York walking through Madrid, but then you suddenly stumble on a barricade or a trench or something. You know, she's trying to bring that home to people. Because one of the standout things about the Spanish Civil War that's so shocking to Europe at that time is that it's the first time when major European cities are being bombarded. You know, this is before the Blitz. Nobody's seen, nobody in Europe, I mean, it's happened in other parts of the world, but nobody in Europe has seen civilians being targeted in this way. So this is a moment where you can imagine possibly London could be bombed or New York could be bombed. Um, So she is trying to kind of bring that home to readers. And she really believes that the reason why people don't protest things like that is because they don't know about it. You know, when she first starts writing, she really thinks that if she just makes people realise what's happening, then it will naturally follow that there will be this kind of outrage that will make a difference. Sure, sure. And we have the written word. We also have photography. And here I'm thinking about Gerda Taro, who captures some very iconic images, including the one used on the cover of the book. Can you tell me about her and how she ends up in Spain? She's a very interesting character. She's somebody who we know actually very little about. And that's partly because she was herself a displaced person. And also tragically, because her entire family was later wiped out in the Holocaust. So there is very, very little documentary evidence about her. There are almost almost no written records written by her, for example. So what we do have is this extraordinary body of, of photography, body of work that she took. And even that has, a lot of it has only recently been attributed to her. She was both professionally and romantically in a partnership with Robert Kappa. And so, you know, she's someone whose work and reputation was sort of overshadowed by her partner. But obviously he became a very famous war photographer after the war. But Gerda was very young when she went to Spain. She was only in her sort of mid-20s. And she was born in Galicia, which was originally part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So after the First World War, when that empire broke up, her family technically became Poles, but they were German speakers and they raised her in Germany. And when she was young, she and her two brothers became involved in anti-fascist campaigning, uh, which meant that she was caught and arrested. And she was in prison for, for, I mean, she was only in prison for a couple of weeks, but it was obviously a very frightening experience. And it kind of let her family know that 
that she was being watched. You know, once she, once she was released, she remained under surveillance. And so she was one of many German dissidents, or I should say she was Jewish, <laughs> obviously was a very significant thing as well. And so she fled into Paris in 1933. And Paris is where she met Robert Kappa, who then was known as Andre Friedman. That was his, his birth name. And she really was the person who helped to professionalize him. He was a bit of a, you know, Paris was full of these sort of displaced people. Sort of, he was almost like a kind of lost figure. He was drinking quite heavily. He was living this kind of quite erratic lifestyle. But she could see that he was really talented. Um, and so she was the person who set his career off. And she also became very interested in photography and he, you know, helped her to learn how to use a darkroom and all those kinds of things. And so when the opportunity came for them to go to Spain to photograph for one of the French magazines, uh, they took it straight away. I mean, for both of them, anti-fascism was a huge opportunity. They'd spent their whole youths have been shaped by, negatively shaped by fascism. And this was their chance to do something active, which Gerd had done at home. But with Spain, they saw this as a real opportunity to propose fascism on a different stage. And one of the interesting things about the Spanish Civil War, and also one of the reasons why it has taken hold in the kind of cultural memory of that period, is that it was really the first war where it was reported as much in images as it was in text. So the first time that, that Gerda and, and Robert Kappa went to Spain, they were photographing for View magazine. Uh, which was this magazine that was heavily uh, illustrated. And it was actually the inspiration for Life magazine, which relaunched in 1936, the year of the Spanish War, as a kind of all photographic magazine. So, you know, people were reading about the atrocities that were being committed in Spain, but they could also see them for the first time. And people like Virginia Woolf, we know that she was receiving really shocking photographs of, you know, the bodies of Spanish civilians uh, and the, their houses, you know, in, in ruins. Um, and that was, you know, it's shocking now for us to see photos from war zones. But then it was not only shocking, but it was it was new. You know, no one had seen that before. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. One thing I found particularly moving in the book were the stories of, I guess, the lesser known people. And you mentioned Nan and George Green earlier in the interview, who were just, I guess, an ordinary couple who both ended up in Spain. Were those then more typical of the foreign volunteers that took up the course? They were in the sense that they were um, affiliated with the left. So that was kind of their motivating force. Yeah, and they weren't, they were not wealthy people. So that was more common. So if we're talking about the international brigades, for example, there's over the course of the war, there were over 30, probably about 35,000 people joined the International Brigade. So we're talking about, you know, a really large group of people. And about two and a half thousand of those people were British. And um, one of the notable things about the International Brigades as well is that they were very much made up of people who were already exiles from 
you know, right-wing authoritarian dictatorships in, in Europe. So there's a lot of people from Italy, of course, a lot of people from Germany, but also places like Romania and Hungary. And also a quarter of the people who uh, volunteered for the International Brigades were Jewish. So this is one of the interesting things, you know, sort of goes back to this idea that we have of the people who were mobilised by the Spanish Civil War were maybe this quite small, homogenous group of people. That isn't the case at all. And it also raises another kind of quite interesting thing about the Spanish Civil War. You know, another interesting sort of statistic is that there are about 90 African-Americans among the about um, 3,000 uh, volunteers from the USA. And what's what is interesting to me about that is that you know, people clearly saw Spain as not only um, an opportunity to kind of show their solidarity to Spaniards and to Spanish democracy, but they also saw in it as an opportunity to continue battles that they were already fighting at home. You know, so there are a lot of the volunteers, for example, the African-American volunteers who went to Spain often speak about fascism as a racist doctrine um, and their expectation that, you know, if fascism took over the world, then then people like them, you know, wouldn't essentially wouldn't survive. There are a lot of uh, Langston Hughes compares Franco to the leaders of the Ku Klux Klan. So there is this kind of interesting sense that people are sort of continuing their own causes. And that and that sort of raises the question of, you know, how you can be an ally to a cause and sort of bring your own your own issues and your own experiences to bear on that cause without sort of drowning out the very people that you're trying to support, you know, without making it about something that isn't actually relevant to, to what Spaniards are going through, for example. And talking about the African-American experience, one case study in your book is Solaria Key, who's a, a nurse who goes over to Spain. How, how did you come across her story? That's a really good question. So the interesting thing about Solaria Key, she's, it's very difficult now to establish a lot of details about her or to sort of verify a lot of details about her and her background. Um, but there was this sort of brief moment during the Spanish Civil War when she was kind of a celebrity. She, so as you say, she was a, a nurse. She was in her sort of early 20s when she went to Spain. She came from Ohio, but she had been working in a hospital in Harlem. And one of the main sources we have for information about her and her background is actually a sort of propaganda leaflet that was written about her and published in 1938 to sort of raise money for the Republican cause. It was a kind of fundraising pamphlet. And that was not written by Solaria. I mean, it seems as if it was probably based on an interview about her. Um, but that, so that is obviously sort of filtered through a p- particular sort of political lens when it's sort of describing her motivations for going to Spain. It's very much given as a, as a political sort of moment of, of awakening for her. But yeah, so as I say, you know, she, because she was the only African-American woman in the medical services for the Republic, she became this kind of icon, you know, they they took a photo of her when she was on the ship that was made into a postcard that was distributed through Republican Spain. She was interviewed, she was interviewed by Nancy Cunard and also by uh, Langston Hughes and a lot of coverage about her in the communist press uh, and also in the, the Spanish press, of course. And she was also filmed in a number of documentaries when filmmakers went out to Spain. So there was this moment where she was incredibly well known. Um, but what's interesting about her is that kind of all of these images that were created about about and around Solaria almost sort of obscure her now and, and kind of a little bit drown out her voice because there's so much talking for her. So one of the things that's really picked up upon is that she is a symbol of the solidarity between African-American people and Spanish people. And there's such an important emphasis on solidarity and international solidarity and this idea of the popular front. And she becomes a kind of icon for this, particularly because she has this 
love story in Spain where she and uh, an Irish volunteer, a white Irish volunteer called Pat O'Reilly, fall in love and actually get married at the hospital where she's working. So that, I guess, so, you know, a mixed race uh, marriage then also becomes very symbolic of the the kinds of, you know, solidarity and, and cooperation and sort of, you know, brotherhood that the Republican cause is kind of held to stand for. Yeah. And, and with her, was it quite difficult to separate the fact from the fiction? I know that you looked at different sources that contradicted each other. Yes, it was. And what I find very interesting about Solaria Key's story is that it's a very interesting example of how historical narratives are established and which ones are kind of given official credence and which ones aren't and which individuals get memorialised and and whose memories are challenged and whose aren't. Um, So there are a number of incidences of descriptions that Solaria gave later in life of things that happened to her in Spain. And I should say, I mean, she always regarded the Spanish War and her volunteering there as one of the great moments of her life, a great kind of moment of service and hugely meaningful for her. But that didn't mean that she, you know, whitewashed the experience. And one of the very controversial things that she said was that she had experienced a racist encounter with one of the volunteers on the Republican side on the ship on the way to Spain. And when this came out much later on, it was very hotly denied and challenged by all sorts of people. And what's interesting to me about that is that, the, you know, the reason that it was challenged was because of the person who was held to have thrown this racist slur at her. It was because they were seen as one of the good guys. You know, they were on the Republican side. They were leftists. They were going to volunteer in Spain as a medic. So it was sort of held that it it, it was almost that it just it didn't fit the narrative that had already been established of who were the goodies and who were the baddies. And so that meant that her version was just kind of drowned out. So to me, that's a very interesting example of how, you know, the power dynamics that, that, that are visible to us in the world around us are also at play in the way that historical narratives get written. Yeah. And talking about, talking about goodies and baddies, that was the case within some families. And I'm think I'm alluding here to the Mitfords, because one key figure as well is Jessica Mitford, who within her own family has fascists. Has fascists in her family, yeah. That awkward thing, fascists at the family dining table. Yeah, I mean, so Jessica Mitford is, I think, the youngest in the book. She was only 18 or 19 when she went to Spain. She's also the person who had the kind of most fleeting encounter in Spain. She actually doesn't end up spending very long in Spain, but I really wanted to include her because... I think there are a couple of things that are really interesting about her experience. So as you say, she's a she's one of the Mitford sisters. So they are kind of notorious for their political divisions. Jessica was the furthest left. She was a or she she joined the Communist Party after the Spanish War, actually. But she was definitely very left leaning. And her sister Nancy, who's obviously a famous novelist, was kind of left leaning, but not very political. And then she has her sisters, Diana Mitford and Unity, who are notoriously very involved in both British and German fascism. And Jessica had sort of long wanted to escape her family. She, you know, she was not only kind of disgusted by their politics, but also incredibly bored as a kind of young debutante in London. And the, her opportunity, I mean, she, she was following the Spanish War very closely and she wanted to go and volunteer there. Um, But it's not that straightforward for an 18-year-old to leave her family home and volunteer in Spain. And her opportunity came through a young man called Esmond Romilly, who was actually a distant cousin of hers, but he had volunteered in Spain. And he came home for Christmas, or I mean, he didn't come home for Christmas, he was invalided home at Christmas time. 
And they met and he helped kind of arrange for her to run away and go to Spain where she planned to volunteer or help him with the journalism that he was planning to write. This later got presented as an elopement because she and Esmond did fall in love. But what so what was interesting to me about her experience was a that it was very interesting to me that her moment of political awakening kind of coincided with her first experience of love and and those kind of connections between those two moments of there's sort of moments of coming of age almost and the kind of similarities actually between having your first experience of almost political conversion and your first experience of love. There, there are some very kind of interesting connections between those, I think. But also, as you say, this situation she was in with having sisters whose politics were very deeply opposed to hers. And, and the Mitford sisters or Jessica and particularly Jessica and Unity were incredibly close. They had a quite an, especially the three youngest girls, had quite an isolated childhood. So they were really each other's kind of main companions. And so the Spanish Civil War, and I think her experience of seeing what fascism meant, you know, in reality, you know, in a, in a war zone or how it had a real impact on people's lives, was this kind of moment where she really had to confront the fact that her sister's, you know, Unity's belief in fascism and obsession with Hitler you know, that had real world consequences. It wasn't just something that they were arguing about over the dinner table. And it's interesting to me that actually that eventually led to their total estrangement. But it's interesting that actually, you know, it's almost the kind of circumstances around them that make, that are changing. It's not their their personalities or their characters that are changing. And how external events can have, in, in sort of really high stakes moments, can have these really kind of um, severe effects on, family dynamics and interpersonal relationships and that sort of raises the question of what we how we understand each other's political beliefs and and whether that can ever really be separated from what you know and love about a person yeah it's it's definitely something to to ponder i mean there's also anger as well towards people's own governments there's an anger towards the british and the americans for failing to act isn't there yeah so i mean this is one of the reasons why the war is seen as internationally significant very quickly is because almost immediately Franco has quite substantial material support from both Hitler and Mussolini. So it's clear that, you know, the the internationally fascists are backing uh, the nationalists in Spain, Franco's side. And what equally happens very quickly is that the British in particular establish that they're not, they're going to not get involved. So they, the British sort of put pressure on the French who are initially quite supportive of the Republic not to provide uh, war material to the Republic. Um, And then they establish the non-intervention agreement, which is an agreement whereby this uh, 27 nations agree not to, not to get involved essentially. And I mean, it includes the USSR, includes Germany and Italy, and they are all powers that completely ignore this agreement that they make. But it's, it's, you know, a sort of early part of the British appeasement policy in a way that they want to do everything they can to avoid a bigger conflict in Europe. And so they fail to provide support to a fellow democracy. Um, and you sh- I should say, you know, the Spanish government, as a legally elected government, has the right to, for example, buy arms on the international market, which is something that the non-intervention agreement prevents the other powers from selling arms to the... So rather than not being neutral, it actually disadvantages the republic. And so there is this real sense, particularly for the sort of younger generation of the 1930s that are, you know, really a f- really taking notice of the fascist powers and their moves towards international aggression, that they're just not, they, they are seeing this kind of disaster on the horizon. 
And they are not seeing that urgency reflected in the behavior of their leaders. You know, they're not seeing their governments behave in a way that recognizes the dangers that are coming from from international fascism. And I think that's something that has a lot of resonance today. You know, if you look at young climate activists or something, you can see that frustration that there, that there just isn't the recognition of the of the emergency that they're kind of trying to raise awareness about. So in a world in which there is so much turmoil today, there is this parallel then. And I, I guess I'd describe it as like, it feels like there's a creeping sense of dread, uh, like what Virginia Woolf writes about, for example, Josephine Herbst as well. This is what appealed to me, I think, as well about a lot of these women is that they're not optimists. You know, they're looking at the world around them and they're horrified by it. And they see, you know, they see terrible disasters on the horizon, but they're not, they don't despair. You know, they, they this is not kind of an invitation for them to just give up and, and withdraw from the world because it's all so awful. They, you know, Josephine Hurst talks about how the 1930s was the last moment where she felt her generation really believed that they had the ability to kind of affect how history unfolded you know they really thought that they could hold off the gathering threat of fascism you know and Martha Gellhorn says you know we she said we really believed that Spain was the moment to stop fascism and they really believed that they could have prevented the second world war if things had gone differently in Spain Um, and so they're you know these are women who are living through really dark times but in a sense, it kind of galvanizes them and it, and it gives their lives a kind of clarity. You know, Martha Gellhorn writes about how fortunate she felt to have been young in Spain because she felt that, you know, she was pouring her life's kind of energies into something that she really believed in. And that is, that's so rare, actually, you know, to feel that your kind of everyday life in the air that you're breathing is all in a cause that you believe in and that may actually make a difference in the world. I just wondered as well, I mean, this feels like quite a personal book. I mean, you talk about your own research as you were going along. What was the most surprising thing that you uncovered during this process? And did it change your overall understanding of the subject? That's a really good question. I mean, I think, to be honest, it's just still that question of there were so many, like Virginia Woolf, I had never in my mind really associated her with the Spanish Civil War. I think there's a real tendency to see someone like Virginia Woolf as this kind of withdrawn, sort of rarefied creature of modernist literature and literary experiment and novels about the sort of upper classes. And reading the Spanish Civil War came extremely close to home for her because her nephew volunteered there and she was desperate to stop him because she just knew that he wouldn't survive it. And of course, she had that, you know, she had lived through the First World War and she was a very committed pacifist and she dreaded the thought of another war in Europe. But, you know, it's so clear reading her diaries and her letters and, and the, the books that she wrote at that time, how much she was affected by this moment of the late 1930s and the sort of gathering threat of fascism, fascism in the UK as much as in Europe. And also how it made her question the role of artists and novelists in, in the world, in society, you know, and to think about what literature should do, um, which was very much a kind of debate that was happening in the late 1930s. And in some ways, a debate that she felt quite challenged by because, you know, the sort of mid to late 1930s is a time when there is a, you know, there's some criticism of her work. You know, in, I think, 1934, Wyndham Lewis publishes this kind of notorious attack on her. And there is this sense that artists need to kind of overtly engage in, with politics and that anyone who doesn't is kind of irrelevant and is failing in their duty as an artist. But she, you know, 
she kind of goes through that that debate and that moment and the, that grief of the loss of her nephew in Spain and comes out the other side with the kind of almost even stronger faith in the value of what she has to say and the importance of not of thinking she says thinking is my fighting and she believes in the importance of intellectual freedom which of course is some is something that any totalitarian regime that one of the first things they want to shut down is intellectual freedom which tells us something about how significant it is you know as a force of liberty indeed and and finally sarah what is one thing you want readers to take away from this book (laughs) wow that's another good question i think i want readers to take away from this book that well one of the key things that kind of drew me to this book was this pamphlet that was published in 1937 called authors take sides on the spanish war And that was compiled by Nancy Cunard. And what she had done was she had sent um, a short uh, questionnaire to as many influential writers and intellectuals as she could think of. And she asked them essentially just to make a statement saying which side they were on in the Spanish Civil War. For she said to them, it is impossible any longer to take no side. And that was so interesting to me that there could be this, you know, this sense that, that, that you've come to a moment in history where neutra- neutrality is just not an option anymore. You know, that there is a moral obligation to decide where you stand on a certain issue and not only to decide for yourself, but to stand by it. And this idea, and I don't know whether it's right or wrong necessarily, but this idea that, you know, a statement in itself, you know, just being prepared to stand by your beliefs is powerful in itself. And I think that is the core idea that this book is is circling and that was so significant in that moment in the late 1930s. And that is a perfect and also a very poignant note on which to close. Sarah Watling, thanks very much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. That was Sarah Watling. Her new book, Tomorrow, Perhaps the Future, Following the Writers and Rebels in the Spanish Civil War, is published by Vintage. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 